needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. Me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Is internationalism the new god that failed? It's a question I want to pose to you at the start of the show today. We will return to it uh, throughout certainly this hour. And it's at the heart of much of what we see happening right now with the Republican Party, with Trumpism, with the emergence of a renewed nationalism, not just here, but in Europe and some are saying around the world as well. But what about internationalism? And what has that done for people? Where, what is the status of that ideology? We're, we're led to believe by so many, so many who seem to think that they are above the rest of us, above the, the hoi polloi, the lumpen proletariat, all of us who are not part of the Davos uh, private jet set elite. They tell us that internationalism or even a globalist approach, although some people use the term globalist, I think, far too often and improperly, and it has some connotations that we'd have to wipe away. But some people take this approach to things, and they view all those who would ask questions as part of the problem. Internationalism is what has been preached by the intelligentsia, by political and economic elites in this country for decades, and now people are pushing back against it. They don't really like this idea that's been happening for a while, and Trumpism and Brexit are the two political events that everyone points to and says, well, hold on a second. Something has changed here. And immediately you can see many of those who have enjoyed a preferred status in Western society, whether we're talking about journalists or the uh, George Soros types, those who have a ton of money they make in the international global markets and then turn around and want to influence how you can live your day-to-day life and use their money in the process to do so. You've got Bill Clinton giving a speech uh, earlier this week in which he was, the, he was the keynote at the Brookings Institution. You want to talk about internationalism. There you go. Uh, but Clinton gave a speech in which he said, and usually I'd be like, hey, I'm Bill Clinton. I'm going to give a speech. How many ladies want to take a photo with me after we get all cozy? I'll just grab you around the waist. Don't worry, your husband's not here. It's fine. Uh, but I actually have to read you the quote so we can take the analysis of it seriously, although a little Bill Clinton voice here and there is, is never, never hurts anybody. I'm just Bill. I'm creepy. I want to be your friend. So he gave this, this keynote, and he said that, uh, pe- quote, people who claim to want the nation state are actually trying to have a pan-national movement to institutionalize separatism and division within borders all over the world. It's like we're all having an identity crisis at once, and it is an inevitable consequence of the economic and social changes that have occurred at an increasingly rapid pace. Now, much of this is the kind of analysis that you would expect to hear uh, from any major Democrat in this country, and it is the sort of thing you would hear from somebody that not particularly well-informed or thoughtful people think is very well-informed and thoughtful. So you have 
Bill Clinton pointing specifically at the events, recent events, Trump, Trumpism and Brexit. Now, Trumpism is just a version of a renew a term that's used now for a new American nationalism. And nationalism as a term is also something we're going to have to discuss and push back on what we're told is the definition of nationalism. Um, and I'll get into that as well. Um, but first, and I know we're going to be moving around a lot here today. I wanted to do some some deep dive analysis as opposed to just, oh, look at this headline. Oh, you see, the, the media is being mean to Trump again. Yeah, the media is being mean to Trump again. And we will talk about that. But sometimes there are other aspects of the big, important debates and discussions that I want to get into other than, oh, look at how look at how biased the media is. Yeah, the media is very, very biased, especially against Trump. We all know this. Um, and we will continue to have fun with that one. But back to our central point here, or some of the central points. So Clinton says that anybody who wants a nation state is trying to build this pan-national movement to institutionalize separatism. Isn't a nation state, if it has control of its borders, if it has sovereignty, it is in fact an institutionalizing of uh, separatism. Right? If, if a nation state can say... This is who comes and this is who goes. And those who are inside of this nation state have to abide by certain rules. That is a separatism, isn't it? It's kind of funny that when you break down what he says, you go, this is really, he's just spewing nonsense. This may get him a lot of uh, clapping at the G20 and the Davos crowd and all these summits where you have to spend tens of thousands of dollars for a ticket to show up to be around a bunch of other very fancy internationalist types you break down what they're saying what they're offering and you can start to understand how a lot of americans and as we see even a lot of brits they're just sick of the empty rhetoric about all this they're sick of constantly being told that unless they embrace this ideology of internationalism and it is an ideology unless they embrace it there's something wrong with them in, in fact they're xenophobic they're racist they're bad they're evil never seems to strike them that a country, a nation state that has obligations like this one that it asks of its own citizens, whether it's taxes, obeying federal law, registering for the draft, any number of things. It asks of its citizens, and therefore we expect that the nation state, in this case America, the one that you and I live in, will privilege our rights and interests above those of non-citizens. If you take a truly internationalist point of view, that's just a temporary state of affairs. It's only a matter of time before you can eliminate that, and everybody gets treated exactly the same. Everybody all of a sudden has the same rights, and you have a true global government. Now, a one-world government or a global government has been the stuff of conspiracy theories for quite some time. But as with any conspiracy theory, there's more than just a, a shred of truth to it. There are a lot of efforts to institutionalize at an international level, not just agreements that, that deal with trade, but as you know, agreements that deal with any number of issues that affect you in your day-to-day -day life. The environment, what kind of appliances you can buy, what kind of car you can drive, all, all this is affected now by an international consensus that automatically takes power out of your hands and gives it into the hand and puts it into the hands of in many cases, unelected bureaucrats, whether at the U.N. or in increasingly remote, in the case of Brexit, the uh, EU parliament. I mean, these are the different institutions of, of global government that 
are trying to make rules and regulations, are making rules and regulations that affect citizens that feel like, why do I have to listen to this? And you've got people like Bill Clinton going around giving lectures, I'm sure, for a lot of money. Although not as much money as he used to, I'd be willing to bet. I mean, it's hard out here. I used to get like, like I remember a Russian bank paid me 500, 500 Gs when Hillary wanted that uranium. And, you know, she gave Russia, she gave Russia the uranium they wanted. And then all of a sudden, you know, now my speeches aren't worth as much. What a shock. What a surprise. Uh, it was the Russians in that case who wanted access to uh, to buy U.S. uranium, which is not supposed to be able to be taken out of this country. But Hillary sold, I think it was or the State Department, allowed the sale of 20 or 25 percent of our uranium. Bill gave a speech to a Russian bank at the time for $500,000. Must have been one heck of a speech. I mean, it was good. But now he's giving a speech about Trumpism at, as I was saying, at the Brookings Institute, which is a very fancy, very well-connected think tank in D.C. And for those of you out there who are conspiracy-minded, I, in fact, interned. I was one of the chief coffee grabbers of my time. I used to go grab coffee for people at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ooh, even more Illuminati conspiracy globalists than any of the others, the Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah, I uh, I did some clerical work there. It's good on the resume, but not exactly. I, I, I wasn't sitting around in a room with Soros, and he was like, but we have very important things to do together. We're going to destroy all sovereignty in, in the United States. Uh, which it would have been fun to have those conversations with George. That never happened. But I did hang out in CFR a good bit and uh, got to know that place. Uh, Brookings is, is similar-ish in that you have the confluence of tremendous uh, wealth and tremendous political connections all in one place. I, I want to return to that as well. This is going to be a theme we're hitting through for a while here because I know a lot of other people. There's only so much bashing of the first draft of Obamacare uh, repeal in the House that I can do before. Like you, I'm sure you're like, all right, I, I get it. It's it's early, not great. We'll work on it more. So returning to the central thesis here about internationalism, uh, you have Bill Clinton. He gives the speech. He also says, quote, the whole history of humankind is basically the definition of who is us and who is them and the question of whether we should all live under the same set of rules. People have found more political success and met the deep psychic needs people have had to feel that their identity requires them to be juxtaposed against someone else. Again, this is sophistry. This is false wisdom. This is Bill Clinton up there telling us things like, for all of human history, or at least the at least the human history of the of the, the state or the nation state, there has been some separateness of us from them. Well, of course. If you're either in the nation state or you're outside the nation state. You're either subject to the authority of the, the Leviathan of the state or you're not. And if you're not, clearly you're dead. I mean, this is just running around in circles. But it, it, again, it sounds fancy to people who are very unsettled by the notion that a lot of Americans and uh, Brits and Western Europeans don't just want to be told about how amazing globalization is, how amazing uh, the technocracies that are growing up uh, or gr- growing out, I should say, whether in the Europe or in, in the Europe, in Europe or the United States, in the Europe, the Europe. Uh, yeah, that's another way to say it, uh, that it doesn't satisfy them and it doesn't meet their political needs and they don't feel like they're represented and they understand that there are costs to all of this. Internationalism as a creed has been telling us for a long time that stretching back for decades, I remember one of the first classes I even was was mandated to take in college was something called Bridge to the 20th Century. 
And it was the equivalent of one long Thomas Friedman article about how, oh, well, there's going to be, you know, I was talking to my cab driver on the way to the airport in some foreign country, and I saw all these construction cranes, and, you know, the world is just changing so rapidly and getting so much better all the time, and it's just all going to be amazing. We're all going to be, uh, well... The idea that we're all progressing and going to just get along and agree about all these rules is is much overstated. And we're beginning to see that, or we have been seeing it, and now there's finally political pushback. And a recognition that with the pushback in America, there will probably others that follow suit. I know Brexit came first, but then with Trump, it seems to have now created a real, or there's a perception at least, there's a creation of real momentum. That will change the way people interact with their governments, will change their uh, sense of whether they should, in fact, view themselves as a different and distinct people from their neighbors. Or if we're all just supposed to be thinking of this like we are citizens of one world. We can't be citizens of one world when we disagree with a lot of those citizens about what that one world government would be like. When there are separations between the way that we view minority rights, rights of worship, First Amendment rights. I mean, you know, the moment you start to look issue by issue at, well, what, would, what can we all agree on? There's very little. There's very little that we all agree on around the world, in fact. I mean, the, the very basic human rights issues, but the moment you step off of, and not even those in a lot of cases, depends on the country. Um, we don't want to be lectured by people who are far away, and we don't want to be lectured by people in our own society who think that those who are far away, whether in the capitals of our own countries or in foreign capitals that are making agreements that we're all supposed to live by, there's a pushback against that. People are concerned about it. And Trumpism is being defamed, and I think we can see this happening. People are saying very nasty things, but saying it's a new national Nationalism automatically has to have a negative connotation in this view. But I would offer to you, what are we supposed to call what are we supposed to call love of country and a desire for sovereignty and rule of law and secure borders? What is the term for that? The left has polluted the idea of patriotism as something we can all agree on, because to the left, patriotism in this country can mean burning flags and talking about how other countries are better and so many other things are great and we do things the wrong way here, but we're just trying to make America better. You're promising fundamental transformation even from the left. And they view that as patriotism, burning the flag as patriotism to them. So that's not a term that, unless we want to fight over who gets to appropriate and use that one, well, what about nationalism? They say, oh, it raises the specter of the atrocities of the Second World War. Well, does, does nationalism always have to? Is, are there other kinds of nationalism? Are we seeing that in this country? This is a debate they don't want to have because it begins to ebb away. It chips away at the very foundations of their belief, of the elite's belief in this country and around the world, that an internationalist view, an internationalist outlook is not just inevitable, but it is the only acceptable view to take. And any challenge to that must be stamped out and destroyed. I, I have a lot more on this, but I, I have to go into a break. Uh, internationalism, is it the new God that failed? I'll also explain that term a bit later. Stay with me. So it wasn't just Bill Clinton that was speaking about internationalism and globalism and globalization this week. You had Peter Thiel, the libertarian-leaning billionaire and uh, and Trump supporter who spoke at the RNC and spoke very well at the RNC. He was talking about uh, globalization and how the tide is going. And he's saying, look, we, we've all been promised that this is going to be so great. 
and people see the results of it and they say to themselves, well, yeah, of course, there are clearly good things that have come from globalization. There's no question. I mean, those of you who are sitting around right now with a smartphone that has more computing power than, you know, than the than the entire NASA space program would have had, you know, five decades ago uh, in your hand for 300 bucks or whatever it is, the globalization clearly brings benefits, but there are also drawbacks. And now we see the drawbacks and people want to start to assess it differently. It's not just a a one-sided equation. It's not just globalization, good, everything that comes from it is good. What about the political impact, the social and cultural impact of unrestrained movement of people all over the world? What happens to nation states? Can they just deal with any level of new of, of migration, of new entrants? Is assimilation no longer something that we do in this country? It's what we used to do in the past. People would come, and then they would wait a while. And then there'd be a surge, and then we would wait a while. Now we're told, and it's, it's been the case since the 1960s, it's just the more, you know, the more the merrier, and especially from disparate cultures uh, that have a disproportionate number of people coming out of poverty with low levels of education, let's, that's been the way it is. And no one really asked the American people about this. We've just been force-fed this as this has to be good, this has to be good. Peter Thiel saying, and globalization ties into the immigration uh, side of this, because they want, they always say the free movement of people make us all richer and better, and it's, it's a meritocracy, and it's not. It's not how it works. It's a big topic we're talking about. Here's, here's Thiel saying that globalization is not what people, or it's not all people are saying it's cracked up to be, at least for some. Play clip 46. I think the tide on globalization is just going out. And really? It's, it's going out on, on, you know, all these different dimensions. And so if you have movement of people, I think, you know, immigration is getting more restrictive, not just in the U.S., but, you know, throughout the Western world. I think movement of, of trade, even movement through information, where I think there may be some headwinds for, uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the Internet was designed to survive a nuclear war, but, uh, but even so, um, I think uh, there, there, there are sort of a lot of... Uh, regulatory challenges that the uh, Silicon Valley is going to be facing from, from Western Europe and, and elsewhere in the, in the years ahead. So I think, I think the tide on, on globalization um, it, you know, is, just, uh, is just going out. In a tide on globalization is going out. Now, globalization is not often necessarily thought of this way, but it is the process that is promoted by globalists. And now, just so we can separate out definitionally because we're gonna i want to keep talking about this i i find this to be fascinating i think this is central to the current political up uh, upheaval and tumult in this country this is the argument it's just playing out in different ways here but the argument over immigration the argument over over national security and over the surveillance state and all of this ties into these issues of globalization and internationalism in in different ways not with everything but in different ways um, but globalization tends to, or globalism is the attitude of placing, this is just a definition out of a textbook here off the internet, of the entire world above an individual nation. Internationalism is that cooperation among nations will be a good thing over the interests of a particular nation. So globalism is just an elevated version of internationalism. People are rejecting this, and they're not rejecting it because they're dumb. They're rejecting it because they're paying attention. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825.
All right, Buck, you're on. Internationalism, globalism, nationalism, patriotism, so many terms, so many words. Important to define them and to understand them and to argue over them. Because we have had to learn, I think, oftentimes the hard way in this country that the left is always willing to both... uh, seize and then change words right they, they will they will grab a word and they will decide that it means something new or something different or they will insist on certain words being used in a discussion perfect exa- e- easy example of this is undocumented which has been a progression away from uh, initially what was just the the legal terminology was illegal alien which never was to suggest that people who come here from any other country or continent are showing up in a UFO and are green and, you know, ET phone home and all that stuff. It was just the terminology was an illegal alien. Um, And now, and then it became an illegal immigrant. Of course, then that brings out the connection between immigrants in our past and these immigrants and how different, and then even beyond that, they didn't like the description of illegal at the front because, well, if it's illegal, doesn't that mean there's a problem? So now we're just supposed to say, undocumented and the implication of undocumented is well if we only got them documents the problem would be solved oh amnesty look how look how we just moved down that road so quickly so the words matter and the terminology matters and you've noticed this whenever somebody begins to talk about trump's ideology which is a restaurant such as such as anybody can define it and and that it, i'm not pretending that it's not malleable that it doesn't change that there aren't differences over time uh, but nationalism is is be- has become or has been made something of a, of a dirty word nationalism is a bad thing what is the description we're supposed to use for sovereignty uh, secure borders and and a, a belief in supporting and being a part of one nation over others yeah th- there is a separatism that comes from that too you are separate and distinct from those from who are citizens of other countries or other states if you're going to have a nation-state system, unless you don't believe in that at all, unless you believe the whole system is wrong and should be eliminated, and that's where we get into this one-world government ideology. Some call it also, a, they'll refer to it as a cosmopolitanism, which that to me just sounds like a bunch of ladies are having fancy cocktails together somewhere. It's cosmopolitanism, so it doesn't really work as a term. Uh, Globalism would be, I think, a good term. I I think globalism would be a a good one to use in this context, especially because globalism is the ideology that surrounds the process of globalization. But if you listen to uh, enough talking heads out there, or if you're already somebody who consumes a lot of media, you probably expect me to start going, the globalists, the Illuminati, you know, I mean, they're coming for you people. I mean, the globalists, like, it's real, it's happening, you know, know, don't say I didn't warn you. And that's so I don't want to get into that either, because I'm not trying to uh, talk and speak about this as though it's a conspiracy and and freak people out. Um, But then patriotism is not a particularly useful descriptor either, because you and I think of patriotism as, well, we love America. Um, I I would uh, fight for and die for this country. I love this country. I love its people. And we think that that has certain 
implications for how one acts and behaves, right? So because I love America, because you love America, it would it seems strange to show that love to you and to me. It would seem to be an unpatriotic act to burn the flag and talk about how we're a racist, misogynist, uh, imperialistic country that does all these terrible things around the world that's responsible for so much destruction and displacement all over the world. Uh, there are many people, the American left believes that that is a form of patriotism because they're holding America to account or they're, uh, they're making it a better country. They are fundamentally transforming the country. Uh, so we can try to fight back on patriotism or fight back on the, the meaning of it, what the implications of being a patriot are. The only place we seem to agree left and right in a general sense is, well, if you if you serve in the armed forces, you're a patriot. But patriotism as a term is much more hotly disputed. right? And then that leaves us with internationalism, which is generally defined as cooperation among nations. Um, but you see that the terminology here matters because what we're left with when we go through this is there really is no good way to describe Trumpism other than to call it Trumpism and all the baggage that that brings with it, good and bad, depending on who you are and how you view it. Um, but what you see with the Trump phenomenon in this country, the political movement that exists here, is a displacement of and and really in a sense, a competing ideology to what we've been told for for decades now and what we've been led to believe with the rise of truly global instantaneous communications and technology and with the increasing stature, at least, not really a particularly glorious record of achievement, but the increasing stature of international institutions, we have entered a new globalist internationalist era and have been told that this will all be good. But then you start to get into what does mass migration mean for a culture that is unrestrained from very disparate cultures? We see what's happening in some European countries, and people have concerns about what it would mean here in this country. Uh, what does it mean to allow people to make uh, decisions for you in your day-to-day -day life based on whether it's climate change or based on their conception of what international humanitarian and human rights are and what the obligations that we have as citizens of this country to citizens of every other country are. We've just been, we, and we've seen this been uh, playing out in, our, in front of our very eyes the last couple of weeks. You have federal judges in this country who outright assert that non-citizens have a right to come here or have a right to at least challenge their inability to come here. And they have, and in that sense, they can override the commander in chief. So as this all continues to be really, uh, in a lot of ways, judged as or judged by the Trump administration, this all happens and people look at the Trump administration, they say, well, this is America now turning towards a new nationalism. I just think it's important to look at the other side of this, which is what we've all been promised for a long time. There is a sense of belonging that people have to a nation state. And you can take this back to ancient Greece and the, the polity, the political union, or the, or the polis, the city-state, which was the original in Western civilization, the original manifestation of belonging to a state, was the polis. Whether it was Athens or ancient Sparta or Corinth, or you go down the line of all of those uh, uh, revered and historically so crucial cities that have, in many cases, been... Law, not lost to history, but no, no longer even really 
get much attention at all. They were very important at one point in time, and it's because the origins of Western civilization in many ways were found in those cities on the Greek Peloponnese. So, uh, now, today, obviously many, many centuries after that, we're starting to ask some very fundamental questions. Those questions involve, what are my obligations to the state? Uh, What does it mean to be a free citizen in a liberal democracy? Uh, Do you get to defend your borders? Do you get to protect borders? Can you decide who comes and who doesn't? What does it mean for your uh, economic relations with other countries? Do you just allow them to do what they want to do? Do the privileged get access to this global economy and those who are left behind are told that they will continuously fight it out and compete with unskilled labor and those who are uh, not at the higher end of the education spectrum in terms of finished degrees and masters and PhDs. And and that's just tough. Deal with it. This is part of globalization. Sorry. These are questions for which the internationalists don't have good answers. And people have become, I think, very sick of it. Uh, Many of them, not all of them. If you live in a major U.S. city, you probably, there's just politically speaking, a very high likelihood that you think that what Bill Clinton was espousing at that Brookings meeting uh, is true, which is that any concerns over the elimination of sovereignty in the United States that, or, or the slow erosion of sovereignty, depends on how fast you want to say we're going down this, this road, how fast uh, the scale is tipping in the direction, Anything, any concerns you have over that are just rooted in bigotry and prejudice and uh, hatred of those who are different from you. When the, the history of a society that is politically disjointed is not one that is particularly, this, is, this does not end in, in happiness. If you want to look at a historical perspective on this, if you're not at least united in the very basic ideas of what it means to be a citizen and what your obligations are, both the state's obligations to you and your obligations to the state, and I think the first is much more important in all of our minds and should be than the latter, Uh, what holds all of this together? Technocrats? What all of a sudden are we listening to? Elected bodies that don't represent our most basic ideals? Now, here's a fun thought experiment. If you're living in a country where there is a surge in illiberal entrants, people who are opposed to liberty for one reason or another, and they're a large part of the, part of the population, and in time they become a majority of the population, and your basic conceptions of liberty are challenged by this group, by this ideology, and I don't have to give it a name, it could be any number of isms that are out there, communism, Islamism, you name it, uh, Marxism, socialism, you go down the list, but if a majority in your country, what what mechanisms do we have in place to protect us from the erosion of the very basic foundational underlying agreement we all have in a country about what the state means and what our role in the state is? What do we do then? All of a sudden, when 51% decides that the other 49% don't have rights, you say, oh, but Buck, the, the Constitution, in our case, that'll protect us. Really? I'm sure you've heard some left-wingers say it, but the Constitution is a piece of paper. The Constitution's authority comes from our universal agreement that it has authority, right? It doesn't, it doesn't say, it, it only works because Americans make it work. It only has power because the American people 
imbue it with power. But other than that, if enough people wanted to amend and, and eliminate the Constitution, they could find a way to do it. And for those who say, well, no, Buck, in our system, that wouldn't even really be possible. You'd have to have such a, okay, well, the Soviet Union had quite a constitution, but it didn't matter because the power was invested in the constitution by the Soviet people. And it's actually one of the ways that they try to excuse the failures of communism in the Soviet Union in retrospect was to say that it's because Russia didn't have, was a, was a poor and backwards country at the time of the adoption of the uh, communist revolution and the communist principles. And it also didn't have a tradition of democracy and individual rights. So a constitution was meaningless there. Well, maybe it was meaningless because of the prevalent ideology, but bring it all back here to America for a second. Why is it strange for us to challenge these sacred cows? Why is it problematic for us to look at what has been promised to us as nothing but endless, nothing but endless prosperity? I would ask you this. What have you been told is a downside, other than offshoring of some jobs, which they'll always tell you, well, that's just competition, man. Uh, other than offshoring of jobs, what do they tell you the drawbacks of globalization are? Internationalists, globalists, are they even aware of how their positions can cause problems for people in this country? I, I think most of them would all of a sudden start stuttering and bumbling and they, they have nothing for you. It's just all supposed to be good. Just like what they tell us about, for example, illegal and massive legal immigration in this country, it's always good. There is no downside. Whenever a political movement or a politician tries to sell you on something and refuses to say there's any trade-off, you should be more than skeptical. You should just refuse to believe it. And people have started to refuse to believe in this internationalist impulse. And in that sense, it is the new God that failed. It's not actually a God. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, but uh, it's a reference to a very important book. Uh, I'll be back with you in just a few, but 844-900-2825. Stay with me. Team Buck, phone lines are open. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. What do you think of all this globalization, internationalism, globalist nationalist talk this kind of stuff gets you fired up around the dinner table i hope well we'll see uh eric in mississippi on wbuv what's up eric hey how you doing buck i'm good yeah good hey uh i just was listening to you talk about globalization and uh there's a a, a fine line or a narrow point that a lot of these people aren't thinking about you know here in America, you know, they always talk about how the poor need to be helped and how the rich need to pay their fair share. What people don't realize is to the world, even a welfare recipient in America is the rich to the world. So when you start globalizing, they're going to start take, saying that we need to do our fair share to take care of people. Well, now America's the rich, and the rich are going to have to pay their fair share, meaning every welfare recipient will have to pay their fair share to the world. Well, if you mean this in, in the, in the, for example, there's there's a form of of massive wealth redistribution that is at the heart of a lot of the international climate change agreements. This is what's often lost when we're talking about this. They say, oh, it's to save the world. But really what you have is the developing world subsidizing, I'm sorry, the developed world subsidizing the developing world as a, a sort of punishment for our advances made using a carbon-based, carbon fuel-based economy. Which our economy is, but if if we didn't have 
carbon-based fuels. We, we would not, this whole thing we live in, this Amer- America where we've got heat and light and smartphones and computers and cars, all that all goes away. And we wouldn't even be at a place where we could talk about alternative energy sources because we wouldn't have the energy sources in the first place to have the research to do any of this. But we're supposed to pay the developing world because they're not supposed to use that. They're not supposed to burn off coal. They're supposed to just get subsidies from it's it's crazy. But people believe this. I mean, when I say people, I don't mean guys who are blogging somewhere and hanging out with their drum circle after their master's class in basket weaving. I, I mean, international bodies that try to get the U.S. to be signatory to a binding treaty. They want there to be a massive transfer of wealth. And by the way, you mentioned how the rest of the world is, much of the rest of the world is very poor compared to America. Look, it is true that uh, capitalism and globalization is responsible for lifting more people out of poverty in the last hundred years than were lifted out of poverty by an economic system in, in, in all of human history before that. Uh, but it is also true that if you're living in America now and the government's position is anybody who wants to come here can come here and compete with you for a job. Uh, if you can be undercut by wages from people where the average person makes $2 a day, uh, you're going to have a really rough time competing on that scale. You see what I mean? I mean if, if we really are open borders, then all of a sudden uh, the privileging of American citizens that exists in the economy goes away entirely. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. It's crazy stuff. Yeah, I'm here, but we're about to leave, so we got 30 seconds. Oh, no. I... I stated my point, you know, people who want this globalization or world government need to think that we are the rich in the world, even though the lowest welfare recipient is the rich in the world. Yeah, well, I, it, well not, 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 not rich compared to, I mean, there are a lot of other rich people around the world, but thank you, Eric. Soros is cutting off your phone. Does not want you to keep talking to me on the Buck Sexton show with America now, but maybe one day he'll let you come back and call. Hour two starts soon. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. Welcome back, everybody. We've got Ben Shapiro on the line. He is the editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com. He's a syndicated columnist and host of The Ben Shapiro Show. Ben, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Uh, let's first start with uh, your uh, your colleague, or uh, he works for you or with you. I'm not sure which, but Michael Knowles at the Daily Wire uh, wrote. <laughs> tell t- tell us about this Amazon number one best selling book. Yeah, so so Knowles is uh, is a prankster, and so Knowles put up a book, a Create Space. He published it himself. It's a book called Reasons to Vote Democrat: A Comprehensive Guide. And it's uh, 266 pages of nothing, like literally nothing. It is blank paper. And it has little <laughs> headings at the top, you know, things like economics and race. And, and, and then it's a blank because there's no reason to vote Democrat. And, you know, I put a quote on the front cover that said thorough. Uh, and we put it out there as a joke. And it started to really take off because it was, it was conservatives buying it as pranks for their, for their lefty friends. And it starts to trend up the charts. It is now number one on Amazon overall. It's selling better than the Bible, you know, and it's, it's literally a blank book. That's amazing. Of reasons to vote Democrats. It's, it's pretty hilarious. And, and what's I think even more hilarious at this point, because it's the top book on Amazon, you got to imagine there are Democrats who are buying it, not knowing what's in it and right? looking and thinking that this is a great idea. And then just buy, and buying it and then realizing too late after they've spent their seven or eight bucks 
that uh, that actually it's just a blank book. So it's uh, it's it's an amazing amazing story. It, it it makes me happy and sad all at once. You know, <laughs> like as somebody who's who's wasted his life putting actual words in books, it makes me very sad. I said to I said to Knowles this morning. I said to Michael Knowles this morning that. I'm not going to say congratulations to him because that would imply actual approval, but, right. it, is a, but it is a really, really funny show. E- excellent marketing. But, you know, it reminds me that a lot of people, I think, buy books, especially off of Amazon, just to buy them and they never read them. I'm pretty sure that uh, Piketty's uh, Capital, you, you, could, you could have anything written in the middle of that thing and nobody would even know. A lot of people just bought Thomas Piketty's book because why not? 100%, 100%. And it reminds you also that the trolling is really fun. But, you know, at some point, you, you should also buy the book about, you know, like why conservative ideas are good <laughs> as opposed to just the one where you make fun of Democrats for, for being Democrats. So uh, it, is, it is really funny. There, by the way, is the second apparently blank book that's out there that Democrats put out there about reasons to love Donald Trump or something. And it's blank and it's ranked like 500,000 on Amazon. So that, that hasn't done big business. So there is justice in the world after all, Ben. That's good to know. Let's get on to uh, on some of your other pieces here on the dailywire.com uh, site. You are the founder and editor-in-chief, correct? Yes. Oh, there we go. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had a few people on on this, and I, I just wanted your, not a hot take, because that makes it sound like, you know, we're just getting this through uh, quickly and you haven't thought about it, but uh, you're short and you're, you're quick and dirty on Obamacare. We had Ovik Roy on, Guy Benson, and we've been talking to this a lot. But the GOP bill that's out there right now, where is it? Stinkburger, not great, but okay. Where are you on this? I think it sucks. I think it's a, I think it's a crappy bill. Uh, I'm not I'm not shy about saying so because I think that you know it depends on what your expectations were. If your expectation was that they were just going to put forward a plan that basically kept in place most of the major provisions of Obamacare that has a backdoor mandate, but not a but not a real mandate uh, that is going to maintain all of the restrictions on insurance companies. They, look, they know that it's a, uh, a crap burger, and the problem is that now they're saying it's part one of three. Okay, well, normally if you're going to sell me a crap burger, you have to tell me exactly what else is in the burger. If you're, if you're just going to if you're going to tell me that it's a crap, here's here's the poop, and now we're not going to tell you, you know, whether there's actual good stuff in here, then I'm only going to judge you by what you put out there. Again, I, I'm not a big fan of these big omnibus packages. It's a 120 page bill that impacts thousands of pages of regulations, and, and it seems to me that they'd be better off just passing a full repeal and then doing, you know, little four page bills that you can either get people to agree or disagree on. Instead, what they keep doing is they keep presenting these options that are the lesser of two evils. Well, you can either have repeal and replace with this, or you can just keep Obamacare the way it is. And say, well, why? I don't understand. And why, why is it that every bill has to be some comprehensive take on the government involvement in healthcare? There, there's a bunch of different problems with this bill, uh, you know, aside from the specifics. The first one is, I just don't understand why Republicans keep falling into the trap of re-enshrining the basic leftist position that government has a role in health insurance and health care. It's not the government's job to be involved in this. That's number one. Number two, you know, you've got, the, you've got the, 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 the problem with interfering in the free market is, as I said on my podcast this morning, once you pull away one foundational plank of the free market, then it's like a domino effect because it creates a, a problem that you didn't foresee, and now you have to have more government involved to quote unquote solve the problem. So they start with this idea that we've got a major problem here with people who have pre-existing conditions not being able to buy health insurance. Okay, well, that's because that's the way insurance works. You can't have a pre-existing fire condition on your house, i.e. it burned down, and now you went and you bought, health, uh, you bought fire insurance. No insurance company will sell that to you. If you really want to solve the particular problem of pre-existing conditions, you actually need communities to come together and you need charity and you need family and you need people to help out on stuff like this and you need a free and open market where there's competition in price for services. But we don't have any of that. So instead, what you see is people say, OK, well, let's keep the, the, the 
provision that says pre-existing conditions uh, have to be covered by insurance. Well, once you do that, now you are left in a position where you either have to subsidize the insurance companies or force people to buy insurance. And, and so, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. not just – it's also that the Medicaid expansion stays in place till 2020. Uh, you're saying that the government is – in, and this is just on the budgetary side of things because this is all about the reconciliation uh, movement that they can do, but they can't do everything. So we're, we're told there will be other stuff that comes later. But I, I was just saying this yesterday, Ben. I feel like there's been a uh, – the white flag of surrender, in a sense, has been waved by a lot of Republicans already on – we're not going to make people live with their health care choices. To your yeah, point about, about buying insurance when your house is on fire, uh, we're, we've now decided not only is, is it not health insurance, it's actually just health care that is subsidized. We, we have subsidized health care. We do not have health insurance in this country. And beyond that, we, we're unwilling to make people live with the consequences of their decisions when it comes to, you know, maybe everybody should get health care under any circumstances, no matter what, for a life-threatening condition, of course. But... Somebody's going to pay for this, and if you don't have insurance, uh, people are going to go and they're going to lose a lot of money on this. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and you're seeing that happen with Obamacare. You're seeing that Obamacare tried to force insurance companies into the position of covering pre-existing conditions and then pl- promised to subsidize them and force people to buy the insurance. And every major insurer in the country is thinking about pulling out of Obamacare because it just doesn't work this way. And now you're seeing Republicans come in and say, oh, well, we'll do government better. I don't think that conservatism is about doing government better. I think it's about the acknowledgement that government can't do this stuff and shouldn't be doing this stuff. I, yeah, and I think I, very, very few people even know that I, I believe under existing regulations within Obamacare, a state can allow another state or rather a state will can allow an individual in that state to buy health insurance in another state. And people point to this as they see it's there, but no state has done this. And there's all kinds of complexity. So even even leaving it to the state level, I don't think it's going to be the uh, panacea people think it is. But I want to ask you specifically about the uh, congressional side of this. And what was it? Tucker last night asked. Uh, yeah, he asked Paul Ryan about the eight days of work. Play clip 44, if you would, please. How many exactly pieces of legislation have been signed by the president into law? Well, the Senate here. So here's these are really good questions. These are very good. Oh yeah, we got a few through. I went to one of the bill signings myself. The one with the coal workers is one of these cases. So we've got the Senate now. They have to approve Donald Trump's cabinet. Okay. They have to put 1,200 people through the Senate to populate the Trump government, and Chuck Schumer can burn up to 30 hours per person. Right. I'm they're, aware. They're, and so and so what we're doing is in between that, the Senate's working on these Congressional Review Act amendments which are repealing Obamacare regulations. The but point then, being, Tucker, is we are executing our plan exactly as we had planned it. We're going after Obama regulations. We're giving Donald Trump the people he needs to staff his government. The House is in session for eight days in April. There's a lot to do. Nothing meaningful really has been. I mean, you could say, I went to a bill signing about coal, but there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been done that he promised and it hasn't made its way through Congress. Not all your fault, obviously. But eight days is not a lot of time to be working in an entire month. Why? Actually, we're, we're, we're producing a lot here. I'm very excited <laughs> about it. I don't know. Not sold on that one, Ben. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Tucker Carlson's skeptical face, but his, his skeptical amuse face was used to fantastic effect on, uh, on, on Paul Ryan last night. I mean, it, Paul Ryan has just become so pusillanimous in all of this. Again, what's amazing to me is that we are now, what, two months into the Trump administration? We haven't seen a single major piece of legislation from the Republican Congress, and the first one they come forward with is a piece of crap. Like, they, what do they do for a living? What do they actually do for a living? You want to know how you got Trump, folks? This is how you got Trump. The way they got Trump is people were so frustrated with Congress, they said, let's elect the guy who's going to go in and break everything. And I promise you, the way this is going to work out is going to be that Ryan Priebus and Paul Ryan are going to take a shellacking from Donald Trump because Donald Trump is going to get hit in the polls because of this stuff if this, if this goes bad. And precisely, you could see, uh, this is a major issue. You could see an actual Republican breakdown this early on if all of this goes south. 
if, if this bill does not go forward, and it's not a good bill, but if the bill doesn't go forward, you could see Ryan lose faith with Trump, and you could see Trump kind of go his own way and do a bunch of other stuff. And in some ways, Ryan is not great. In some ways, he's a militating force against some of the things that Trump wants to do, like this trillion-dollar infrastructure package. So, you know, this is – it's amazing they decided to lead with this. I actually can't believe they did. It seems to me they should have led with the tax reform stuff. And as far as the, oh, it's reconciliation versus, you know, you have to pass it through the Senate with 60 votes. Okay, so the, so the hell what? You know, so, so put up some good legislation. How about this? How about you have a basic job? That is to put up good legislation that we can all defend and all root for, as opposed to bad legislation that half of us think is absolute garbage. Do you think we should start, uh, they should start anew, rather? You think that this is, or is it enough to say, well, there'll be fixes and amendments? We had uh, uh, Louis Gohmert saying that, you know, somewhere in the big pile of, of, uh, refuse they'll find a pony he didn't say refuse yeah but. i mean i mean again if i don't understand why republicans now dominate the legislature and run the white house why do they have to sift through to get to the pony i'm just confused like this, barack obama was able to put forward a, a plan that had no compromises passed with only democratic votes why exactly would i mean his, his only compromise was not putting in place a public option that was literally his only compromise on that bill why exactly should we have to compromise? Yeah, why, why is Obama and the Democrats, why are they able to go scorched earth and Republicans have to go, you know, tepidly and, and, and meekly into the fray? Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely bewildering to me. It's like you're not going to win any Democratic votes anyway. But we, I'll tell you what this really is. What this really is, it's a bunch of Republicans in swing districts or in, or in red districts that they're, they're scared of, one, Trump, because Trump has put his weight behind this, and two, they're scared of their own constituents because they think that if they start cutting entitlement programs, they're going to get nailed for it. Well, I mean, if there's ever a time for political courage, gang, this is it. We were told that the world was going to implode. All of humanity would end if Donald Trump wasn't elected and Republicans didn't gain Congress to save us all. Okay, let's see some saving. Let's see some saving. Like A lot of people made a lot of compromises during this election cycle in order to get to this point. We're at this point now. Okay, let's see the solutions that you have that are actually going to make things better, not the ones that are going to trim around the edges and supposedly ensure your political future. By the way, it's not going to ensure your political future because every time you fall prey to this idiocy where you say, well, if we just create a new entitlement program, people will love us. Really? How, how has that worked out for Republicans? Yeah, they're competing with Santa Claus, and Santa Claus is always going to win. The Democrats are Santa Claus. It's just insane. It's just insane. And I don't see the purpose of it. I don't see the rationale behind it. You know, other than to try and fib to the followers, the people who are sort of the ardent base members, and say, yeah, we did repeal and we did replace. We kept our promise, but we kept our promise by replacing it with something that looks a lot like what was there before. Again, this is but not you don't think it's fi- But you don't think it's fixable? This is what the, and there's step two and step three, and it's Trump, so there's 4D chess. I, 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 again, I don't see where if – if they're going to say it's fixable, how about they propose to me some fixes? Like, I'm sure everything is fixable. I can fix it right now by burning the stupid thing and then creating a, a one-page bill that says repeal Obamacare. I mean, this is not that difficult if you actually care about getting to market-based solutions, but I think Republicans are scared of getting to market-based solutions. I think what they actually want to do, I think, this is, I think the real Trumpian 40 chess here is what they actually want is for this bill to go down in flames. I think this is what, what you know, Steve Bannon and some members of the White House want. This bill goes down in flames. Trump sits around, he blames the Democrats for not compromising and blames the Republicans who are too weak need to get this thing through. And then the Republicans go back to their district and they say, look, we tried to pass the best bill we could and we need more Republicans in order to do this. And it just turns into another political wedge issue. And, you know, right. I, you have to give us six. Now we need 60. It's not enough to have a majority. Now we need 60. That's that's where you think this right. is going. Yeah, I think that's where it's going. And I think that and I think that 
you know, President Trump is has basically said as much, apparently. I mean, there are reports today that he says if we can't pass this bill, he's willing to let Obamacare sit out there and just continue sucking. And then he will come back in two years and he'll campaign on the basis of Obamacare continuing to be a, a piece of garbage legislation. OK, well, that's good so far as it goes. But it seems to me that you're you know, for all the people who are saying that, you know, it's a big risk not to elect a bunch of Republicans this time. It seems to be a bigger risk to, to let a, an entitlement program continue to gain heads, heads of steam while you sit around betting that maybe you'll get to 60 at some point in, uh, in, the, in the future. Ben Shapiro is editor-in-chief of TheDailyWire.com. Check it out. Syndicated columnist, host of The Ben Shapiro Show and The Ben Shapiro Podcast. Sir, great to have you, Ben. Come back soon. Thanks a lot. Team, hitting a break. Be right back. Some breaking news from a little earlier today. Uh, happened over in Europe. Six injured after Axe wielding man, this is from the Daily Mail, goes on rampage in a Dusseldorf train station as an accomplice is arrested by anti-terror police after jumping off a bridge to escape. Daily Mail with those super intense long headlines. That's how they that's how they do what they do. Um, but here, anti-terror police are involved. Six people were injured by this axe-wielding maniac. He went into a Dusseldorf train station. So you've got a mass, a mass transit hub an assailant with an edged weapon, in this case uh, an axe, who's trying to kill just everyone around him. From what I understand, was unsuccessful in killing anybody, but he did hack a 13-year-old girl in the arm. Um, and others had some serious had some serious injuries, but no one reported to have been killed, which is which is good. Um, there's some cell phone footage of this, of course. Everybody now carries around a camera and an instantaneous. Uh, transmission device for sound, audio, video, everything else. Uh, not much in the way of, of details on this. Uh, I, I wonder, I wonder, for example, why, as I read this, uh, there is no description of the suspect or the individual who is seen fleeing with him. Uh, couldn't that be considered? This was in a public place. This was in a train station where I'm sure there are a lot of cameras. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, surveillance footage of, of what happened. And yes, we will see some of that, I believe, in the days ahead. By the way, it's it's rough. What Some of this, some of this stuff is already out there. It's, it's bloody. And so if you if you do look up this news story, just be aware of the fact that there are some gruesome, some gruesome uh, scenes that are already, have already made their way on the internet. But I just, I read these stories and I find myself thinking, is this the way it's going to be? It, it reminds me of when in New York City, here I am, I'll be watching the local uh, the local channel here. Not, not, not a local channel like the CBS affiliate. I mean, uh, New York One is particularly egregious with this, which to me, it's, it's just, it's so, it's like NPR. It's so partisan that it doesn't even know what partisan is. And they'll run a story about how there's a, a suspected... You know, suspected rapist on the loose, and this will be in in the context of a a public service announcement or a, a public awareness announcement, a bolo, a be on the lookout for. And I kid you not, I, this this is how it goes down. They'll say, you know, woman attacked, escaped from attacker, but you know, suspected sexual assault in the park. Police want uh, police want everyone to be on the lookout for a uh, five foot ten male. Wearing a, a a sweatshirt, and you say, 
Well, that's not particularly useful if they're going to. I mean, that's not really much. Clearly, the 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 intended victim in this case, and I'm thinking of one specific incident that I remember seeing, and I couldn't believe it. They did it this way. Clearly, the intended victim could give a more detailed description uh, to her uh, to the police than that about the attacker. And this is a person still on the loose. We we want to find out who this is. Press just reports, you know, 180 pounds wearing a sweatshirt. That's all we know. Roughly 180 pounds, so they can guess the weight. Um, and here we have in in the case of of Germany, no descriptions of the suspect whatsoever. I mean, they'll come out eventually because, of course, the criminal justice system, they'll have to show who the charges are against. And But when they initially report on this, you can just tell there's this there's this sensitivity at work. And maybe I don't know, maybe this was a a member of the right wing German, uh, you know, nationalist party, whatever. Maybe that, that, that's possible. Sure. And if that were the case, I'd want to know. But I think we can all see this time and again happening. And it's especially acute in the context of how uh, jihadist attacks in in Europe get reported and in Canada. But the same thing Uh, in Canada, there was this outrage. I think I even talked about on the show about a Syrian. I believe it was a Syrian refugee who allegedly uh, attacked uh, six very young girls at a water park in Canada and they didn't want to give a description or anything of this guy and they were open about how they don't want to give a description because that will create a rise in Islamophobia and I just think that the media has it all wrong with this we are we are in, in western societies like Europe and America and Canada the citizens are adult enough to hear what's going on we, we can be told and we, we don't take that out on innocent people because they uh, look the same, worship the same, have some ethnic or national origin the same with some with some assailant somewhere. That That's not, and it's not a decision that the press should be making, but they make these decisions. So in this case, I don't know. I don't know what this attacker in the Dusseldorf rail station looked like, if he said anything. I don't know anything from initial reports. And maybe it's because, no, you know, they're just, they don't know. I, I doubt that. I don't know anything about it, but... I know that they know more than they're telling us. And, you know, another here's another example of this, by the way. And I I credit uh, my friend Sean Davis, the Federalist, with this one. Time magazine tweets out that a North Carolina teen has been accused of decapitating his mother. That was a news story earlier in the week. And Sean points out that, no, it was an 18 year old illegal immigrant from Honduras. Uh, How does that get translated into a North Carolina teen? He's an adult. He's an adult. And he's an illegal immigrant, and he's from Honduras, but he's a North Carolina teen. Interesting way to frame that story. All right, we're going to talk Russia in a minute here, team. I'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Media is... Betting big on the Trump-Russia story. I've been saying that to you for a while. And there's a pretty decent essay from a a lefty in Rolling Stone, which, of course, is the magazine that wrote the completely uh, fabricated and and very destructive and journalistically uh, wildly unethical and, and entirely false UVA rape story. Um, but Rolling Stone's been around for a long time and occasionally read some things that, that are good. So this author 
is uh, is Matt Taibbi, who clearly doesn't like Trump, is clearly a left-wing Democrat kind of guy. But it's interesting because he's taking the perspective here that the way that the media has set this, the, the, the title of the piece is Why the Russia Story is a Minefield for Democrats and the Media. And he's there's a lot of astute, astute stuff in here. Uh, things that I've been saying in, in a different context or with, of course, a different political ideology behind it. But he's pointing out that this is all accepted. Uh, the, the whole narrative of the Russia hacking and this is, is written about even by many members of the press as though it is just a question of when. It, it's, not a, it's not a situation where you look at this and you say, well, maybe they're going to investigate uh, but it, it's just a question of, of time until they find that Trump is part of this horrible conspiracy. He, he writes, for example, there are inevitably uses of phrases like so far to date and as yet. These make visible the outline of a future story that isn't currently reportable, further heightening expectations. This is what I've been saying to you. If they had something really damning, we would know. There's no reason to believe it would be held back at this point. Why would anybody in the media hold it back? It would be a huge scoop. They hate Trump. They want to bring him down, as you know. But they write about this in such a way that you come away from it knowing immediately where they stand on the issue. And, and that this is just treated as what smart, this is what smart journalists think, that it's a matter of time until Trump is finally found out for being the Russian agent and part of a giant Russia conspiracy that he is, they think. Um, let me give you a little more of what he writes here. More, the case that the Russians hacked the Democratic National Committee now appears fair, uh, fairly solid. Even Donald Trump th thinks so. This, of course, makes it harder to dismiss stories. Uh, well, etc. He goes a little further there, and then I would say, but the manner in which these stories are reported is becoming a story in its own right. Russia has become an obsession, cultural shorthand for a vast range of suspicions about Trump. That is absolutely true. The Russia, uh, the Russia story, the Russia investigation, the Trump-Russia conspiracy, uh, calling him the Siberian candidate, all of this stuff that's out there right now is now being taken up as as almost a part of the leftist progressive culture. See, the, the reason that you want to be a leftist, or the reason that people often are leftists in this country, yeah, sure, some of them believe in social justice, and they have really a really heartfelt uh, sense that if only we redistributed wealth better, everybody would be better off. And I, I mentioned the, the God That Failed is the, uh, the book. It's a really a collection of essays from six former communists in 1949. The God That Failed was communism, of course. And maybe I'll spend some more time tomorrow. My first, uh, first few segments today went longer on the definitions and internationalism and how I believe internationalism is now for many people uh, the new God that failed. Um, but th one of the things that comes across from former communists is that they recognize that there are many there are smart people and dumb people to whom communism has for whom communism has appeal there are decent people and terrible people very good people and terrible people for whom communism has ideological appeal and it, it then becomes an issue of well okay who is adopting this as a posture 
who is adopting this because of what it what allows them to say about themselves. Now, communism, of course, is pretty radical. But in even the case of socialism or being a Democrat socialist, are we dealing with individuals who take these positions because they really think that as matters of policy, they'll have better outcomes for all human beings? Or do they take these positions because this is what smart, good people do? This is what the smart, good people, which, by the way, you see this now with, with climate change is probably the, the best example of this. Where you have people who haven't read a science textbook in, in, in their lives, I mean, including you know high school and grammar school, and they're going to lecture everybody else on the enormously complex, as it was described in one of the IPCC reports, the International Gov- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that climate is a, I think they said it was a... Uh, decoupled nonlinear chaos system or something like that. I mean, it's like, which is a fancy way of saying really complicated. Uh, But you can have people that couldn't explain the process of photosynthesis drawing it on a napkin for you. They they couldn't do that. But they're going to tell you about how climate change is so important. And if you don't believe in it, you're a bad, you're not just stupid, you're a bad person. Russia is now getting put, the Russia-Trump conspiracy is now getting put into that basket of Things that you believe if you are a leftist who wants to be in good standing with your fellow leftists. It's a posture more than it is a policy position for a lot of folks. And what you see is a gamble, a massive gamble that's being taken by a lot of these journalists because it's it's out there. They've put it out there that they believe that this is all leading to an ultimate, an ultimate moment, a conclusion that will bring down the Trump administration based on the way they write about this. They don't write about this with the skepticism. If you want to do a really fun exercise, uh, read the way that mainstream newspapers write about the Russia conspiracy and then read the way they would write about Hillary Clinton's email server, which I, I had people when I was at CNN there were talking heads who I knew because some of the producers were telling me this behind the scenes were avoiding me on air because one, I actually had held a clearance and worked with classified information for years. And so I knew what was what I knew what was illegal and what wasn't. And there was no person they were going to put up against me. No Clinton surrogate of which there are tons at CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS. I mean, you've got Clinton surrogates hosting shows saying they're journalists. But no person was going to sit across from me, especially one who had never held a clearance and knows nothing about what classified and protecting classified means. They weren't going to have that debate with me and, and look good, no matter what, the, you know, no matter how much the uh, host would throw his or her body in front to defend them. And no, please, this is one of our favorites. We're grooming, we're grooming this progressive talking head for his own show. Uh, and there were a few in particular that were very prominent Clinton folks. And I kept saying, I'd see them on. I'd say, I'd, I'd email the producer on the show. I'd say, why don't you let me ex- explain to this person? Why don't we have a little discussion about how there's absolutely no way that what Hillary Clinton did with her email server was not a violation of federal law. And that was when the story broke. I mean, that was right away. Because I said, if this is the main email system that she's using for everything, for all of her communication with staff and everyone else, there's no way that she and she thought that she could do this without anyone seeing it. There's no way that she's not going to have classified crossover. But oh, Buck, you can't. I remember once being corrected by one of the anchors. there. Well, that's just I said, if she has classified on her server, it would be a crime. And they said, well, that's just your opinion, man. They didn't say the man part, but no, it's not actually my opinion. That's a statement of legal fact. 
And it was a statement of legal fact that that's what she did. And they let her look. I also was was honest in telling everybody that even if you press charges against Hillary Clinton for what she did, you couldn't uh, you wouldn't be in a position where you'd expect her to get decades and lock her up, lock her up. She's not going to get decades in prison for this. Because you would look at other cases. I mean, they they just commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence after six years. She put out actively and willfully hundreds of thousands of, uh, he put out hundreds of thousands of documents that were classified, marked classified, and all the rest of it. So six years. So with Hillary, you're probably going to get a, in a, in a fair system for what she did, you'd probably, it'd be like a Petraeus situation. You plead guilty to a, a misdemeanor, you've got a parole officer for a year or two, and, you know, that maybe a little more of that. I don't think they were going to give her jail time, and I don't think that in a similar case many people would get real prison time uh, for what she did. Honestly. Honestly. Now you're going to say to me, well, Buck, what about the individual who took a photo on the sub? And first of all, yeah, I think that the way that lower-level people are punished for those kinds of infractions is a, is a complete scandal. It's a disgrace from within our government system. It happens all the time. And you don't even hear about it most of the time because usually it's just professional sanction. It's not necessarily criminal that people face, but their career is ruined over something that can be relatively minor. There's very little forgiveness of this uh, this kind of thing. Um, but with Hillary, what they would say is, well, she lacked uh, she lacked the mens rea, which they let her off on that entirely. I'm just saying they could make a case. A decent defense attorney would make a case that she didn't know that some of this was classified or not. And then you get into the anyway, I'm, I'm getting deeper into the weeds on this than I meant to. And I'm, I'm sorry for the uh, for the digression for a second here. But ultimate point I'm trying to make is that the way the media covered that, not only were they skeptical, they were running interference. You see the polar opposite now with the Trump Russia conspiracy, which if it if it is found out that Donald Trump met with Russian agents and was actively colluding with them, that means taking active steps to help them in their cyber intrusions into the DNC. I'll be one of the first ones to say there there needs to be consequences. This is terrible. This is, I, I give that, the, the chances of that happening, I put in the, at this point, like the one in 10,000 range maybe. I just don't see that being a possibility or or a realistic possibility. Do I think that maybe one of the lower level Trump, uh, a lower level Trump aid meeting, I mean, Manafort was campaign chairman for a while, but Maybe got a little tip that the Russians were planning a special Hillary surprise and didn't say much about it or just sort of said, okay, whatever. It's possible. It's not a crime. So there's that. And I don't think that it threw the election. So I don't think it really matters. And I I also don't know what people would expect the Trump campaign in those circumstances to do. It depends on the spec. This is a hypothetical. Depends on the specificity. Was it just they've got something for Hillary? I mean, if Vladimir Putin wants to give a speech about how Hillary's the worst ever, is he allowed to do that? Yeah, he's allowed to do that. So they don't necessarily know what active measures or what uh, steps the Russians would be planning. But again, I'm even conceding that anything was done, which I don't think there was. Meaning that there was a meeting between Trump and Russia on any of these issues. So I think Russia probably hacked the emails. Yeah, of course. I think Russia hacked the emails. It wasn't very complicated and it didn't really matter. But... The way that they covered Hillary emails versus the way they cover the Trump hacking shows you the the artistry of their propaganda, the language they use, the words they choose, the hedging that they do in the one case versus the leaning forward and the pushing it forward they do in the other. And here you've got a lefty with this Rolling Stone guy, uh, Taibbi, who 
I think we all are quite certain, absolutely despises Donald Trump. I mean, I'm guessing. Maybe I'm wrong. Although I'd, I would put, I'd put some money on it probably. I mean, there's no way he doesn't think Trump is, is the worst. And if I read the article again, I'm sure I'll find some, some telltale signs that he thinks Trump is absolutely the worst. Uh, but he's cautioning, and this is the important part of this piece. This is what I think is interesting. He is cautioning his fellow left-wing journalists not to get too ahead of their skis on this because what if they don't find anything? What if this doesn't go anywhere? Or even worse, what if the investigation that Congress says it's doing and that the Democrats say is needed and that goes forward and they come up with nothing? How can we all then turn around and look at the media that's been presenting this story as though we already know the ending? And that's what they are doing. They are presenting the Russia-Trump conspiracy story as though they know the ending and we're all just getting there. It's just a matter of time. If they are wrong, what do, what happens then? How are we supposed to believe them after that? Oh, not that we really believe them now anyway, but they will have been mounting not just a an all-out scorched-earth campaign to prevent Trump from becoming president during the campaign in the first place, but then after he becomes president, they will have been running with the story that is the biggest fake news story since Dan Rather's National Guard documents with George W. Bush. How can it be seen as anything other than that? So he is warning his fellow journalists, this left-wing journalist, don't be clowns. Stop pretending like the answer to this is already known and we're all going to get there. And I'm sure he probably, maybe he even thinks that Trump did this, but without proof, journalists lose credibility when they make assertions. And I don't know if you think they have any credibility at all left, but... That's kind of where we are. All right, I, I gotta. I'm getting too excited here. We're running through the through the blocks. I'm forgetting. I gotta go to a break. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. What do you think about the latest on the Russia Trump conspiracy, including the General Flynn registering as a foreign agent for Turkey? Uh oh. We're gonna have to talk about that. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. Be right back. Even when I'm not sure I'm right about some of this stuff, turns out I am right. Matt Taibbi, that guy from Rolling Stone who wrote the piece, that I, it has some very astute uh, segments or some very uh, very intelligent sections of analysis in it. But I wasn't sure what his position on Trump was because I haven't read his stuff in a while. Uh, he's he has a, His latest book out is called Insane Clown President. So I'm thinking he doesn't like Trump. I think that's a fair, a fair point to make. Um, yeah. But at the bottom of his piece, this one, I also want to say to you, this, he writes, the press has to cover this subject, but it can't do it with glibness and excitement, laughing along to SNL routines before it knows for sure what it's dealing with. Reporters should be scared to their marrow by this story. This is a high wire act, and it is a very long way down. We might want to leave the jokes and the nicknames until we get to the other side, wherever that is. Yeah, that is what a reporter would do. You can chase your hunches, but you're not supposed to report on your hunches as fact. And that is what is going on. Um, with So anyway, yeah, his, but his new book is Insane Cloud President, so I'm pretty sure he doesn't like Trump. Uh, also, as a, as a follow-on to what I was talking about earlier in this hour, uh, the axe attack in Dusseldorf, Germany, uh, we've seen some updates here. The assailant is described as from the former Yugoslavia and, quote, has mental health issues, end quote. Okay. Uh, if they know he's from the former Yugoslavia, I'm thinking they know more about him than than just that. And has mental issues. 
well, yeah, anybody that takes an axe and starts swinging it at, at a injured seven people clearly has very serious issues. Uh, but that doesn't tell us very much. But from the former Yugoslavia, so he's from the Balkans? Okay, well, what is... Uh, first of all, how do they... I would want to know how they know that. My sense is they know everything about the suspect, and they're just letting out little drips of information. Anyway, so that's, that's just an update there. Um, I do have to talk to you a little bit about... This latest in the, oh, it's going to go into the Trump-Russia file, but should it? Because does it really matter? Do we need to care? NBC News reporting Michael Flynn, General Flynn, who was National Security Advisor for a few weeks. uh, He has disclosed that his lobbying might have helped Turkey. The way this is being reported, of course, is that he he has filed paperwork with the Department of Justice under the Foreign Agent Registration Unit. This is not helpful to the Trump team, that is for sure, because I'll get into the details of this, and it's... This is one of those times where I'm going to say this to you all, team. It's not as bad as it sounds. But, yeah, Michael Flynn has registered with the uh, Foreign Agent Registration Unit. Uh, I'll get into what that means, and then a lot of other stories coming up. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's why That's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Oh, there's more Russia stuff. Oh, yes, indeed. First, I got to talk about the Flynn registering as a foreign <laughs> You can't make this stuff up. So you got General Flynn registering as a foreign agent. Now... Okay, the people are going to make a big deal. NBC News already reporting it. Uh, well, actually, the Associated Press reporting it. NBC News picking up the feed. So here's what happened. Flynn's got a consulting firm. A lot of people that work in government when they leave, especially if they have some fancy title, head of something or other or chief of some cool-sounding thing, they want to make money in the private sector. Hey, it's America. You know, got to do what you got to do. Pay the bills. And they set up a consulting firm. I have to say my experience, and I've known some of these firms, and uh, I've even been offered employment at some of these places in the past, is that unless you're, first of all, unless you're a principal, unless your name is on the letterhead, you you tend to be very, you're just a glorified researcher. So in a lot of places, these international relations consulting firms, unless you have a specific relationship or there's some aspect of, you that they are leveraging anyway that's not i'm sure not too many of you are thinking about running off and working for a k street international consulting firm but if you were i'd say you really only want to do it if you're going to be one of the principals generally speaking not all not all the time i'm speaking very broad very broad spectrum here but and then there's also what value do they really bring rolodex can be very valuable connections can be very valuable then you start to get into, well, uh, how much influence are you providing to these foreign co- uh, foreign uh, governments and foreign companies? And you start to run up against some issues of law. In this country, for example, you have to register with the Justice Department if you are going to be doing <clears throat> lobbying on behalf of a foreign country. Now, Flynn was part of a consulting firm or had a consulting firm that did an, a, a reported $530,000 worth of lobbying before the election 
that was favorable. It's being reported as favorable to the Turkish government, to the Republic of Turkey. Um, and now after that, Flynn has a filing with the Justice Department to register him as a foreign agent. Now, under the Foreign Agent Registration Act, U.S. citizens have to tell the Justice Department if they are working as a, as a, on behalf of a foreign government in this country. And yes, if you don't register, willful decisions not to register are considered to be a felony. So it is technically a felony charge, kind of like the Logan Act, which is also a felony charge. But this is like the Logan Act in that it is almost never used. It would maybe only be used if the Justice Department wanted to get you for some other reason and they could only get you on this. But it is not something that is oftentimes prosecuted and it is acceptable practice. And this is one of the reasons why it'd be hard to prosecute because when there's a longstanding practice and the government accepts it, then it's tough for the government to say, well, this time we're not going to, we're going to prosecute you, right? So there's a longstanding accepted practice of disclosing it after the fact and you sort of get right with the Justice Department. So, and the Turkish businessman who hired Flynn uh, told the Associated Press that the filings were from Justice Department, or the filings came in response to Justice Department pressure. And he says he, uh, and so this is, now we're going to get into, well, did he file because he thought it was really what was mandated under law? Or did he file because the DOJ was saying, you better do this, you better do this. You know, you're already on thin ice because of the whole Logan Act thing, so you might as well do this. And he felt like, okay, well, if I take the affirmative step of filing, then I won't have to um, have this hanging over my head and the DOJ will leave me alone. Well, I can understand why you would think that, but of course, as one of the data points that is trotted out by the Trump conspiracy folks, the Trump-Russia conspiracy folks, is that Flynn lied about this phone call to the Russian ambassador, and now he's going to have to register after the fact as a foreign agent. This will be seized upon, and they will make much more of this than the facts warrant, but that's what is going to happen. At least that's how I see it playing out here. This is going to be viewed as, oh, look, Flynn, yet again, doing something shady, doing something bad. Why can't we all just understand that he was part of, he was a, a centerpiece of this giant conspiracy to get Trump elected that brought in the Russians? So the Turkish lobbying thing is not as big a deal as it may seem when you read that. It, it really isn't. Uh, I, I've had people, even on the show in the past, and I found out in one case after the fact that the guy was basically a lobbyist for the Turkish government. I was like, oh, that explains his positions on Turkey and Armenia, for example. Um, but this isn't something that would make a whole lot of difference to anybody, I would think. Unless, again, you you view this as yet. And if you are predisposed to view Anything that has to do with Trump's team and the people that are in Trump's team that are that touch on the Kremlin in some capacity, then you can just start to find all these data points and pull them together. Uh, and that's what I think will happen here. So this is being this is getting a lot more attention. Than I think it deserves. All right. We got another one, though. We got another one today. I just saw this when we came on air. It just broke on CNN right before we started the show today. And that's that the. This is sources, CNN is citing sources, FBI investigation continues into 
quote, odd computer link between Russian bank and Trump organization. Now, we've heard about this before. This isn't new. We have been told that there is some Russian bank server that was pinging and trying to contact a server that has Trump uh, Trump name attached to it. But the server, it sounds like now, or the computer is in Pennsylvania. Let me give you some of the some of the details here. Uh, well, you know, actually, if I get too into the details, it's just gonna. It, it's a lot of complexity without a lot of so what to it. So they here's what here's what what this is what CNN writes for what is known. A small group of computer scientists obtained internet traffic records from the complex system that serves as the internet's phone book. Access to these records is reserved for highly trusted cybersecurity firms and companies that provide this lookup service. So somebody who had access to this, it seems, leaked it once again. These signals were captured as they travel along the Internet's domain name system. They show that Alpha Bank in Russia repeatedly looked up the unique Internet address of a particular Trump organization computer server in the United States. So publicly available Internet records show the address was registered to the Trump organization, points to an IP address, that lives on an otherwise dull machine operated by a company in the tiny rural town of Lititz, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, from May 4th until September 23rd, uh, the Russian bank looked up the address to this Trump corporate server 2,820 times. More lookups than the Trump server received from any other source. All right, well... They can't tell you anything about, they can't give you any definitive anything about this. They can't say that this is shady or not. They've got nothing other than this is a thing that happened with this Russian bank. And the computer experts that, they, that they've talked to are saying, well, it, it could be this, it could be that, it could be, we don't know. We've heard this, though, in the past. And uh, I would think that if there were something here, those who have subpoena power and the ability to, yes, wiretap and, yes, collect electronic communications and engage in electronic eavesdropping, like the FBI, would know about this. So we're being told, um, he, he, by the way, this is an important part of this piece, too, that CNN has been told that there's no Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant on the service. So CNN has been told by their sources in law enforcement be very curious to know who this is, but of course we won't be told that, that there's no FISA warrant for this server. The FBI has declined to comment. The White House has declined to comment. But the uh, federal investigators and computer scientists continue to examine this, according to CNN. So CNN is saying here there's still an investigation into this server or this computer in Russia at a Russian bank, Alpha Bank, that was contacting a computer that is allegedly attached to the Trump organization. They don't know why. They don't know if it's a problem or not. They they know nothing other than there's a contact between a computer in Russia and a, and a computer in the U.S. that had something to do with the Trump organization. That's all that they know. I would like to know what they think they're going to find out here. What exactly is going to be the aha moment? That this server was having all this contact with the US based server because this is where the this is where the grand conspiracy plans were being relayed to a computer in Pennsylvania. Oh, really? And and so in order to do that, it was using the equivalent of looking up a, a phone number for a place 
it w- it did that. Uh, I'm trying to see how many times did it do it. Uh, thousands of times. From May 4th until September 23rd, the Russian bank looked up the address to this Trump corporate server more than 2,820 times. It was more lookups than the Trump server received from any other ser- source. So, okay, so this server has this bank look. I mean, I know already you're probably like, fuck, this is not the most exciting story you've ever told us. And I get that, but this is being, this is what they're hanging the, well, there's still an FBI investigation into Trump-Russia ties. This is what they're hanging that on. This is the main effort in that now. And once once again, you've got Flynn registering as a foreign agent, but it had to do with Turkey, not Russia. But still, they're saying he's registering as a foreign agent. Look at that. He didn't tell us about that in the past. Well, that's a lot of people do that, and then afterwards they register if they feel like there's some reason to do so. And they're going to forget. Just like with the Logan Act. We were told, oh, it may be a felony. Well, it's never been prosecuted. Oh, but it may be a felony. Different sets of rules, depending on how you view this politically. Um, but uh, Russia stories that don't, they don't have to move the football down the field on this Russia stuff. They, they just have to keep playing. The, they just have to keep the, the ball in their hands. They just have to keep playing the game and see where it all runs out. I, I will be very curious to know what the event, I, I think this will just turn into no matter what the actual evidence turns up or what evidence they're able to find. They're never going to say, oh, yeah, we've exhausted all avenues and Trump's clean. It's fine. They're just going to say, well, we didn't find it, but it's still there. It, ne- it needs more investigation. It's never going to not need more investigations, what I'm trying to say. Uh, those who believe that this is uh, the, the most in- incredible political conspiracy in this country. I mean, I think it would. If, if Trump was colluding with the Kremlin, it blows water get out of the water. I mean, it's a whole it's a whole next level stuff. The most amazing political conspiracy of of not just my lifetime, but a couple of lifetimes before me, I would think, in this country. Um, but people are never going to give it up who believe it. I, I'm pretty convinced, no matter what. And I, I'm saying investigate. Go for it. Find whatever you can find. The Trump team that is not exactly known for discipline in any sense, message discipline, communications discipline, they were so savvy with their Russia contacts that they did this in such a way that nobody was able to figure it out. Nobody was able to find out uh, what happened here. Even the FBI, assuming that these CNN sources are correct, the FBI looking into this is not enough to track down what really happened. Uh, FBI's when, when the FBI's been told you did something wrong and it's it's you know they've got an electronic trail to look at, and and you have done something wrong, uh, they tend to get you. The FBI doesn't tend to, they have a lot of ways to look into this and figure out what's going on. If if they, if the eye of Sauron turns on you from the FBI and you've done something, it's going to be bad usually. It's not good. doesn't work out. You know, there's one of the other reasons why the federal prosecution rate in this country, successful prosecution rate, I think is, it's over 90%. It may even be 97%. I always get confused between how many end in plea bargains. I think it's 97% maybe end in plea bargains instead of trial and over 90% guilty verdicts, I think, for federal court. So, yeah, there's that. But, oh, no, Trump is 4D chess, man. He was able to do all this stuff with Putin and nobody would even find out. I don't think so, everybody, but we shall see. Hit a break. We'll be right back. So what was it, just a few weeks ago that we saw... The uh, correlation or the connections being made in the media 
between the rise in anti-Semitism in this country and Donald Trump. In fact, I, I remember seeing on TV a few very uh, heated exchanges between people where one person was claiming uh, that, oh, yes, indeed, Trump anti-Semitism from Trump is why all these threats are happening at these Jewish community centers and a few other people saying or other individuals who would meet this with, what evidence do you have for that? And the answer, of course, was nothing, but just anything that can be used to, uh, anything that can be used to undermine or to even better to, to slander the Trump administration they want to do. So here's what we know about this. And it's it comes from my former, uh, my former bosses over at the NYPD Intelligence Division, where I worked for a time. And here's what they uh, here's what they say about these threats against Jewish community centers. It is most likely one man, according to the head of the NYPD intelligence division, one man using a voice changer and phone spoofing device who is behind at least a large number of the scores of threats made against U.S. Jewish institutions this year. And this was said on, on CBS this morning. Um and he said that the way, this is interesting, he said that the way that this happens, or they believe this is happening, is that this spoofing device makes it appear the call is not coming from the number the man is using and makes it appear it's coming from within the institution. So he's, the, the head of the uh, intelligence division, John Miller, said, we have an offender with some technical prowess here. So the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, has been saying that there are 148 threats targeting Jewish institutions across the country since January. And now we'll find scores. I mean, so a lot of these threats, as of now, it is believed, come from one person. So national news stories and and members of the press running with those news stories to suggest that the president of the United States is so vile and so terrible that there are threats, bomb threats against Jewish community centers and schools. And it must be because of Trump, they're saying, right? It must be because of Trump. And now we find out it's, it's well, this is the second individual, the first individual that was tied to any of these threats. We're talking about a couple of, remember, a couple of people here so far. The, uh, the first one was a Bernie Sanders supporting socialist who hates Trump and used to write for the far left wing anti-U.S., anti-government Intercept website. Uh, he was an African-American and left-wing, and this is what we know about this guy. And for a while, everybody thought, oh, well, it's the guy making these threats, he must just be sitting at home, you know, wearing a, a, a I don't know, a, con a Confederate flag tank top with a Make America Great Again hat on or something. I mean, that's the way the press views this stuff, right? They caricature it and they make assumptions. And when it doesn't fit, when it doesn't happen the way they think it's going to happen, they never stop and think maybe we should revisit those assumptions. No, it's just, well, next time we'll be right. And, then, and they're so rarely right. It's, it's amazing. You know, every time a bomb goes off somewhere, who, who tends to be more right? The, the, the people on the right who, when a bomb goes off in this country, their first thought is probably, you know, ISIS inspired or probably some jihadist or the left where you've got even very prominent people like former New York City Mayor Mayor Bloomberg who thinks well a bomb went off in Times Square it must be one of those angry right-wing people who are angry about health care 
the, the people in the first part of that tend to be right more often than the people in the second part. But back to this story about the uh, the threats against Jewish centers. This is not going to get nearly as much attention, of course. But you see that the damage is already done. Uh, first of all, the damage is done for these centers that have to evacuate and they have this fear. And uh, there is the more e- even one individual is able to spread a lot of anti-Semitic attacks out there. It, it In a sense, it... Uh, you know, makes it makes it harder to devote the resources to uh, to deal with this stuff and track it down uh, because you got one guy's making these calls all over the place. Um, but they never stop and think, well, hold on. We were running with the story for a while that Donald Trump was causing this environment. Maybe we shouldn't have done that because they're actually the press is happy. They were able to get away with making that connection based on zero evidence for weeks. And, and for a lot of folks out there, the perception will be, well, Trump is an anti-Semite, so it doesn't matter. Whether this was true or not, I guess it doesn't really matter because media keeps telling us he's an anti-Semite. And the evidence for that is what exactly? And at this point, the evidence keeps getting smaller and smaller all the time. It's not there. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's, why. that's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. 844-900-2825. You want to call in? Freedom Hut is a, is, is a rockin', my friends. So uh, give me a ring. Roger in Delaware, W-I-L-M. What's up, Roger? Hi, Buck. Uh, I got some schooling last night uh, by a name you uh, probably know and maybe even know the person, uh, uh, Herb uh, Meyer. Uh, don't know. Don't know this person. No, sorry. Oh, okay. He he was an advisor back in the uh, Reagan administration, <clears throat> and uh, I I read a speech last night that he gave in mid February in uh, Phoenix, uh, Arizona, and uh, it was really uh, enlightening uh, how the uh, intelligence works. The title of the speech was "How Intelligence Works." And parentheses when it does, <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was uh, very enlightening. And uh, uh, if if you don't know him, or you, you might uh, like. To well, why don't you why don't you enlighten us? Tell us tell us some of the things that you learned. Well, uh, <clears throat> the Central Intelligence Agency, up until the uh, time of uh, Reagan. Uh, was and, and particularly with regard to the Russian arm of the intelligence uh, operation, uh, they were uh, focused on their strength and the, the weaponry and so on and so forth and the and the, the, the soldiers they had and that sort of stuff. And then uh, uh, the uh, Casey, uh, the uh, CIA uh, director, uh, somebody sent a, a, a question to them that asked, uh, "Where are their weaknesses?" And uh, they replied back that they had never, they didn't know uh, that because they'd never been asked that question before. But that led to them investigating what uh, Russians uh, Russia's weaknesses uh, were, and uh, and uh, Reagan uh, using that he was able to bring down the uh, wall and the uh, actually Soviet uh, Union uh, two two years apart. And I knew both of those things happened, but I wasn't aware that. Uh, the time frame was as little as uh, two years uh, apart. <clears throat> but, All right. Well, Roger, uh, thank you for calling in and uh, sharing that with us. So, 
I haven't spoken very much about the, I, I know, and people have been asking me, well, you know, you were in the CIA, don't you have a lot to say on the on the alleged uh, hacking tools released by WikiLeaks? I'm like, no, <laughs> I have some things to say, and I definitely don't have a lot of things to say. Uh, first of all, as I've already told you, I, I don't I don't know anything about the cyber cyber intelligence uh, unit that's mentioned there, and I I really don't. And I know I have to say, even if I did, I'd say I didn't, but uh, I really don't in this case, because um, I'd say I didn't, but I don't. I don't actually have any knowledge about it, and I, I don't understand. I don't really understand what the look. The the outrage should be about the the idea that anybody thinks it's a good anybody thinks that it is sensible and helpful and wise for this organization that clearly has ties to yeah it has ties to russian intelligence i've been saying this for a long time these are well established and well known uh that this organization wikileaks releasing this uh releasing what would be if they were real and i'm seeing the new york times is going through them of course and saying that there's there's been some Certainly some uh, misleading statements about the capabilities that are described as well as the specific programs that are mentioned. This is the New York Times reporting on that. Now, I, I don't I don't know. I, I, one of the reasons I've been waiting on this is also I, I want to see what's true and what's not. And that's I leave that to uh, in terms of the specifics and the technicalities of it. I, I leave that to others. I don't know. The government is clearly not going to uh, at, th- at this point authenticate, not going to confirm or deny any of it. Um but WikiLeaks, it, let, let's say WikiLeaks had the most sensitive information. Let's just say, theoretically, they had the most sensitive information imaginable on U.S. surveillance and monitoring capabilities. Let's just say, and I don't mean in this case, just in general. And they then released that, to, they were then re- released that publicly under the guise of, well, they could, they could be using this against you. Well, yeah, I mean, they also could be tapping your phone. I mean, they also could be uh, reading your email traffic. I mean, this is all, that's all known, right? Or are we really, are we really that surprised that we do live in a turnkey totalitarian surveillance state? This is the laws that we have in place and the consensus of the American people about their civil liberties is all that stops that. If we were living in a different kind of country with a different population, all the tools are there to monitor you 24-7, to monitor all of your conversations, everywhere you go, every way you communicate with people. That all exists. We all we know that, right? So, I mean, just based on your phone calls, your emails, I mean, if the FBI, going back to that, is doing an investigation on you, all the stuff you're doing online, all that, they can get to that. Now, I mean, as you listen to Comey say, well, we can't get into every phone in every case. Okay, maybe there are some technologies that give them trouble, or maybe there's some encryption that they have an issue with. Or, but as a general proposition, yeah, they can monitor all the stuff that you're doing. It's really easy. I mean, they can mic up your house. They can take your. They can listen into your phone calls. They can read your emails. They, can, you know, they. I don't mean to just be picking on the FBI, but all this technology exists. Of course, it does. Um, and the technology that is specifically discussed in these WikiLeaks, uh, in these WikiLeaks files, I don't know if that exists or not, but the notion of privacy in the digital world that we live in now is we need to start to think about the, the protections you have come from uh, the laws that are in place and disclosure and a transparent government. And I know there's a, there is a big tension there, too, because 
you know, you see how law enforcement sometimes, uh, let's just go to the law enforcement side of this. They get very clever with what they're willing to do and use. And you even had a Supreme Court case. I believe it was uh, Kylo was the name of the case, K-Y-L-L-O. And it was about how law enforcement was tracking down grow operations by looking at the heat signature coming out of houses. So without a warrant, they would just drive around and say, uh, drive around with equipment to monitor the heat coming out of your home and decide that, oh, well, look at all that heat in that weird barn that looks like it might be used to grow marijuana. Let's, let's now get a warrant for that and let's go see. Um, and you know that that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. You see monitoring devices now that can be placed on cars, whether there needs to be a warrant for that or not. Uh, these are issues that are, are still constantly being litigated, and we're making decisions on this. I've I've ex- told people before, and this is the fact that this is not more widely known. I think is uh, a little jarring, and should be a should be a wake up call for a lot of us. That for law enforcement, I'm not sure if they've even changed the law. It was the case that they only needed reasonable suspicion, not probable cause, to get a log of your email traffic that was older than 90 days old, I think was the what was what the law said. So email that was three months plus had less legal protection under the law for a long time, and I don't know if it's even still the case or not, um, than email that was recent. Well, why is, you know, you know, is the email that you sent to your doctor about whatever you got going on, whatever, uh, you know, six months ago, that no longer deserves privacy protections from law enforcement or that you wrote to your, you know, estranged spouse or whatever, because it's older than older than 90 days. It's fine. But less than that, you need probable cause, probable cause, a higher standard, right? Probable cause is that there's already evidence pointing to the likelihood of the uh, of, of committing a crime. Reasonable suspicion is, you know, we got it is what it sounds like. Yeah, I, th- I think there might be something going on here. You just need to be able to justify it, but it's a lower standard, uh, lower standard of proof, to be sure. Um, but this is, this is already the case in this country. But that you would have this moment of of, uh, of fear with so many people that, and I think this is what Comey, when he gave his speech yesterday, and others are trying to address, which is whether there are new technologies out there or not that can leverage what you have and. You know, very few, very few people that I know try to use special encrypted, uh, a special encrypted chat app to talk to their friends. I know very, you know, this is, you know, journalists get very concerned about this because of their sources. But as we know from the AP uh, phone, to, uh, the AP phone logs being seized and James Rosen at Fox and all the stuff that the Eric Holder Department of Justice did, there are, there's already surveillance going on of journalists and uh, and there are ways that the government is trying to, you know, investigate their sources. So... You know, this that is not that is not a new idea. It's not a new concept, and it is all reliant on having some faith and trust in the government and the laws that are in place to protect us in our privacy and vigilance. There needs to be real vigilance, and I, I do think that we have become, as a people, I think that Americans have become so enamored with the convenience that we have from all these devices that we do forget. As I as I constantly remind everybody to listen, you are carrying around and freely entering of your own accord the most sophisticated and all-encompassing surveillance device in the history of mankind and authoritarian police states 30 years ago would never have dreamed of of this. It gives locational data. It gives uh, communications. It gives what you're, you know, you type in what you're looking for. It's basically what you're thinking about. I mean, just everything. Uh, So 
it's pretty pretty crazy when you put it into that in that context. So I'll have more for you on this uh, WikiLeaks leak um, as there's more verification or not of it. Uh, as we see more of the government's uh, willingness to discuss some of this openly or not, I just I want to see where it goes. But uh, one more thing on this, and then I'll, I'll hit a break, and then I, we've got some calls up. You can't don't 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 trust WikiLeaks, please. Um, do not trust them. That doesn't mean that everything they say is wrong or false, but do not trust them. Their motivations are not to be trusted. And that you would have a situation now where WikiLeaks is saying, well, we'll work with tech companies to address these, quote, hacking tools that are out there. Uh, remember, this is an organization that thinks that it has a right to get access to sensitive and protected data that shows no criminality and, but, and we'll just share it. That's that's taking a lot a lot of authority, a lot of power into this organization and does it in a way that's clearly politically motivated, whether or not I'm just talking about the Hillary situation, which I mean, I did find that pretty amusing. But I admit that there's a little bit of a double standard, a lot of supply there. Oh, well, they're leaking stuff about Hillary. So that's not so bad. Well, that's not really the way we should view this. This is these are these are the Chelsea Manning, you know, leak uh, associates as well. And, And there have been other instances where WikiLeaks has put out stuff that was. Uh, damaging to U.S. interests. And, you know, Snowden. I, I I keep coming across, especially with some of my libertarians, and libertarians are a smart and overall a smart and charming and fun bunch, but they want to take this position of Snowden as some kind of, uh, you know, freedom warrior. You know, he's just free information guy. He just wants to... No. No, I'm sorry. Uh, a foreign collection platform that the U.S. intelligence community may or may not be using is no business of the rest of the world. They're all, this is what you don't find, this is what WikiLeaks won't tell you, this is what you don't find out from these organizations and from these so-called whistleblowers. They never tell you about what the, the Chinese and the Russians and others are doing against us. Uh, you know, China put out this official statement. I saw this today about how, oh, you know, America, once again, America must be stealing information from us. Uh, the the theft of sensitive, both military and commercial proprietary information that China has engaged in is on a scale that we'll never be able to fully comprehend. I mean, it is, I believe, and maybe this is too far for some, and that's fine. I believe that they recognize that the transfer of the electronic transfer of information that has occurred between us and China, that the Chinese Central Committee and the Chinese government views this as a game changer for Chinese civilization's dominance going forward. That would be my estimation of how important to them it is to get all the stuff that they're getting from all over the world. That the Chinese are thinking really long-term about this, and they understand that our greatest advantage, yes, of course, we have the greatest people in the world and, you know, America, number one, I'm on board for all that. But uh, our greatest advantage is in is in information and knowledge. That is what separates us from a lot of other countries that have natural resources and large populations and all the rest of it. And if we lose that information advantage, what advantages do we really have? You start to ask that question. Now, I know it takes a lot of time, and then you also have the benefits of a free society and a, you know democratic institutions and the durability of our you know civil, all that. I get that too. But... We're talking about wars and fighting and technological advantage. It's, it's a lot of it's information based. All right. Uh, Got to hit a break. Be right back. Take a call and we'll close it out strong. Stay with me. And we're back and we've got Pat in Massachusetts on WHYN. What's up, Pat? 
Hi, I have two quick questions for you before my real question. Did you learn the correct pronunciation of Lackawanna? Is it not Lackawanna? It's Lackawanna. Isn't that what I said? Well, I wasn't sure of how you pronounced it, but there's a city next to Buffalo called Lackawanna, and it's a county in Pennsylvania. My other question is, are you related to John Sexton, president of New York University? No, I get asked that a lot, but no relation as far as I know. Okay, here's my real question. Do you know what a sexton is? More important question. I do. It's a someone who works in a church who does something with the candles. That's right. It's the person. It's the caretaker of a church. She often collects uh, uh, collects offerings and sometimes even digs helps dig the graves. Um, and right. I, I, not to be confused, as everyone knows, everyone always comes up and be like, "I know what your name is." It's a, a a device used by people at sea using the star. I'm like, no, that's a sextant actually, but. You know what a sextant is, Pat. I'm impressed. Very few people do. What was your next question? Well, it's it's part of a Emily famous Emily Dickinson poem, also. So um, my I was first, unaware of I, that. Yes, it's about the one going to church. Some keep the Sabbath by going to church. Some keep it by staying at home. I don't know if it has a. It's one of the sonnets. I don't know if it has a title. Anyway, my real question is this: Did you follow the campaign, the presidential campaign of 1992? I was 10 years old. All right. Well, I assumed that you might have been following it. <laughs> so I'm sorry to disappoint you. Young, young Buck was up every day with the Wall Street Journal, but no, I, I did not follow it closely. I, can't, I mean, I've read about it, of course, in retrospect, but I wasn't following it at the time. Sure, you were very precocious. Uh, George H.W. Bush was running in the primaries against Patrick J. Buchanan. Mm-hmm. Now, in that campaign, the the platform of Patrick J. Buchanan is essentially exactly what Donald Trump has latched onto or assumed now. I mean, he's taken on all these platform issues. Uh, Pat Buchanan was anti-immigration. He was anti-NAFTA. He was called racist. Pat Buchanan was run out of the Republican Party in 1992. He wound up running as a Reform Party person a few years later. But Pat Buchanan ran on these issues, and he was against NAFTA before it was passed in 1992. Uh, He was one of the few Republicans that was fighting against NAFTA. He was actually working with the Democrats against the Republicans trying to stop NAFTA. So everything that Pat Buchanan stood for in 1992 was totally rejected by the Republicans in 1992. I'm wondering why you think they're letting... They're following Donald Trump, even though he's espousing the exact same thing that got Pat Buchanan run out of the party for. I think we've had a couple of decades of a bipartisan near worship by the major parties of globalization and the internationalism that I started talking about at the, at the start of the show today. I, I think that's and people uh, are, re- are rejecting it now that they've seen it. They were promised that it would only be good. Pat, your question is excellent. And I'm very sorry they're playing the music because I'm out of time on the show today. But maybe we can revisit some of this tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, the, the the short answer to an excellent and question that deserves much more time is that people have seen the results of the policies, the opposition to anything that uh, Buchanan was putting forward back then. Uh, but that's what I got to leave it for now. Uh, everybody, if you're listening, please download the show on iTunes. You can subscribe on iTunes, Buck Sexton with America Now. Just type it in, check it out. Until tomorrow night, my friends, have a fantastic uh, rest of your day and evening. Shield tie.